Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's your week been? Have uh, things been good on your side? All I really do is play Xenoblade 3. Right. Uh, like that's kind of my life now because I've developed this mania about it that I want to just do the most thorough review possible. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'm coming up on coming up on the 60 hour mark now. Jesus, and that's like how long have you had it? Like about two weeks, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that is a man who really likes one specific JRPG series and no others, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong yeah, there? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Am I wrong there, Matthew? Is there? Is there no, other? No, that's that's right. I've I've become like a proper Xenoblade YouTube person as well. Oh, right. Like I've started watching things that I would never watch. You know, anything longer than ten minutes where someone's droning on about like <laughs> I'm going to rank every bracelet that you can equip in Xenoblade 2 or something and I'm like yeah I'm up for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sounds like it's got a lot of the energy of our podcast these videos by the sounds of it but yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know what it is this has happened several times before like when a new entry is coming out in something I tend to get very excited about that series and I'll replay a lot of them which is great for this podcast because we conveniently do these big episodes where we dive into things but also I would do that anyway you know, like when Uncharted 4 was coming out, I played the the three of them again beforehand. You know, it's probably the only time I do replay things where there isn't, like, work involved. Yeah. It's just because I get pulled into the kind of hype bubble of it. And watching YouTube deep dives is quite a, quite a good way of sort of sustaining that. Is there, like, a big sort of theory crafting scene with this series then? Is there, like, uh, people who try and uh... interpret the lore, is it, or is it just more more straightforward than that one of the things which is great about xenoblade series is that they're quite like explicit you know they they don't like leave much to chance everything's kind of in the game and i wouldn't say it's like particularly like strictly surface level but you know i don't feel like there's massive room for interpretation like there are some things like hilariously and i don't want to get too deep into this because we're going to do a big xenoblade episode but um (laughs) there's like famously this document which came with a Xenoblade action figure, single-handedly responsible for, like, 90% of what people know about the game's lore. So people are always referring this ridiculous, like, basically, like, in the instruction manual for a Japanese, like, mech figure, (laughs) (laughs) which someone has translated, and this has become sort of the the go-to source for so much stuff so people are always like well of course as we learned in the instruction manual for this action figure (laughs) like this doesn't seem like the best place for us to extract like deep lore like if this was that important it should probably be in the game the dead sea scrolls of xenoblade you know (laughs) that's it that's exactly what it is that's what i was looking for i was desperately racking my brain for oh i know there's a there's a perfect term for this yeah yeah the dead sea scrolls and it came with like a figma <laughs> Lest I sound too intellectual, there, Dead Sea Scrolls is something I only realised existed after uh, watching Evangelion. So, like, that's you know, <laughs> just to be clear, like, there's no, again, no, no real intellect behind me knowing that. It's just uh, watching anime. So, uh, I'm worried yeah. how often I hear the word Evangelion in this podcast. <laughs> I only, well, Rich, yeah, go on, sorry. Rich mentioned it a lot in the Metal Gear one. I've, I've been hearing it. I should probably watch this thing at some point. Oh, have you not seen it? No. <laughs> oh yeah, it's legit great, but harrowing. That's why, like, uh, that's why people bring it up because it just burns. It sears itself into your brain because it's just so right. horrible. Um, yeah, no, I've I've not seen it, but Rich watched it, 
and he brings it up a few times in the Metal Gear XL for those who have listened to that. He just obsessively pushed everything through this Evangelion kind of like prism for like months and it was driving <laughs> me up the wall. Like not everything is like fucking Evangelion. You know, oh, well, I doubt it can be unless it's <laughs> so profound that, you know, this packet of crisps that we happen to be eating at the pub can somehow be linked <laughs> to Evangelion. <laughs> yeah, that might be a stretch. But the um, Metal Gear is a bit more apt comparison because it's got yeah. mechs that bleed and scream and sad people in it. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a, a good little plug there, Matthew. That's a great episode. Nearly three hours of Metal Gear chatter on b- behind the paywall. Um, so, uh, yes. But this episode... We did. We've done uh, two episodes of our Indie Games Hall of Fame episodes. We really enjoy doing those. They're a bit of a format break from what we normally do. They give people a chance to come on and share some of their recommendations. We wanted to give the Nintendo Switch the same treatment over time. Build a Hall of Fame of Switch games because we felt like the library was simply too rammed to do a simple top ten as we have done for some other formats in the past. This is Volume One. Uh, we'll select uh, around five games for this one. There's technically six, but it's meant to be five games each episode. Um, we know that's less than the Indie Games Hall of Fame episodes, which were like 15 games apiece. We thought that was too exhaustive um, for us. Exhausting, rather, uh, really. That's um, <laughs> a bit of both. And uh, yeah, we wanted to, we wanted to be a, a bit more gradual with it and, to, and sort of slowly craft a Switch library that um, we think is great. So, Matthew, yeah. how are you feeling about doing uh, doing this, uh, applying this format to the Switch games library? Yeah, I, I think it works. You know, when, I, when we were first throwing around the numbers, like a little bit of me was thinking like, you know, four, five at a time, you know, like you're not going to get very far with an, with an episode. But I think that'll let us come, maybe go a bit deeper into those things. Also, the Switch is a weird one because it's so sort of ubiquitous and popular that it doesn't feel like there's a heap of truly hidden gems. Mm. It's not like, surprise, there's a Mario game you don't know about. You know, that that <laughs> that, that doesn't isn't going to happen in this episode. But... It's like the one platform we never talk about, and we're so far from talking about it on like our games of the year episodes because mm. we've, you know, we're probably like a good over a year away from getting to the Switch years, and yeah, you know, we're not going to do a draft for it because it's a console that's still in play. So yeah, just as an opportunity to actually like talk about the console i do play the most it kind of makes sense yeah i think like you know everyone adores the switch really the form factor the you know the library the just the the the, the feeling of using it it's just you know it, it is a, a phenomenal handheld and i do use it as a handheld i have only plugged into my tv a couple of times um and yeah i just it's it's sort of like it is something we've discussed in passing. Like it'll come up every now and then, and I'll press down the the road of a few switch questions. But it's true that we don't talk about it that much. Um, it certainly hasn't had its own episode focus before. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to be discussing it. So um, this is a good starting point then, Matthew, because you say there's no real sort of like hidden gems in a sense, and I think that's at least on the Nintendo published side. Um, there's nothing that's like really obscure from them relative to some of the the libraries of um, consoles past. So mm. I was curious, do you think there's a unifying identity to the Switch library in the way there maybe was with um, previous Nintendo hardware like the GameCube or the N64 or the Wii? Can any console be simply boiled down any more like that given the quantity of games released all the time? I think at the outset, definitely in the first couple of years, you could maybe extract this narrative from Breath of the Wild and Mario Odyssey that these were kind of like 
like reinventions again and i was thinking like did nintendo use the switch to basically take a second look at everything and and take things in in new interesting directions but that that narrative i don't really think exists out of that initial stretch of like breath of the world odyssey arms you know there was a point where i thought oh are we gonna is switch gonna be like the new nintendo franchise console you know are we gonna be getting a lot of arms and actually we haven't Hmm. really that isn't a criticism of it i think what i actually like about switch is that i don't think it has a single unifying message and that has basically freed every individual team at nintendo to basically do what is best for their game and make the best version of their games or some of the best versions of their games yeah you know we've definitely got some like weird outliers in the mix but there is that sort of Wii sports casual kind of like through line that is like super obvious and you cannot deny it but here what's best for the game is what happens so you get like you know luigi's mansion 3 can be like a super lavish production where it's got these like incredible cinematic production values but then you've also got xenoblade can just be this vast sprawling jrpg which you know really doesn't like rein anything in or you can have like fire emblem which goes well you know we're about how much people love these characters and we're going to really double down on like the fan service and the social side of this we're really going to draw that out and generally i think they've made like you know when when these teams are left to their own devices they make the right calls so as vague as it is i think the like the unifying factor is that like the the people people who manage these series for years know best and are sort of acting on that yeah i think i would agree with that it's i I sort of like on the nintendo published side yes there are a few new things in the mix but there's a lot of like refining of things that existed on wii u and 3ds um yeah pushed into like a more refined perfected form so smash bros is a really good example of that like you say luigi's mansion is a good example of that splatoon 2 is a good example of that like Mm. splatoon was like a a hit on the Wii U, despite the Wii U being just, you know, a, not a success in itself. But uh, when, as soon as it, that same sort of formula gets moved um, to, you know, Switch with more content, it's like a phenomenal success. So, yeah, mm. there's a lot of like, a lot of sort of through lines from previous, the previous generation that just seem, seem to culminate quite nicely on Switch. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I would, I would agree with that as an assessment more than like a reinvention of things. Obviously, you know, that is only one strand of what the Switch is about. You know, it has this huge indie presence. Um, it has, uh, I would say, like decent or definitely like interesting third party support. Maybe not like v- as much kind of exclusive stuff as we got on the Wii, but like really nice ports and that kind of. But I, again, it, it's, I think it's that thing you mentioned of like, a games library now is just so varied mm. it is kind of harder to sort of like extract that any kind of through line and and maybe like the fact that they are open you know they are clearly a lot more open with you know indie game placement than they were before you know it is it seems a lot easier to get games on on the nintendo platform now and you know that's that's a change which is obviously further watered down the control not everything is filtered through the lens of like we wear or a particular kind of indie brand not a fan of bullseye the game matthew uh (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's vast amounts of shit as well yeah yeah i don't know i find that side of the console like slightly harder to talk about just because 
I am mainly well fed by Nintendo and maybe like a few big indie games. Like, yeah. If if I'm gonna shop around and experiment, I'm still more likely to do that on PC or probably Game Pass. That I do agree with. Like it's uh, when I don't have a a massively refined library, I will just hoover stuff up on a whim. I don't think I've got loads of shit, but I've got a few things that are like sort of like also ran indies and then i've got the like real top tier of indies as well um and i say top tier indie combined with um nintendo exclusives is basically where the sort of all of the good stuff in the library comes from in terms of a unifying identity i think that that is the reason like you say there isn't one because if the gates are open like that the library just becomes a bit amorphous if you're trying to say what what is the ps4's identity you would focus in on the games Sony has made, but there is so much stuff on that console that it's almost not as like neatly packaged as a thing to discuss as like the PS2 was for whatever reason. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. Yeah, and that's, that's all. Fair. That's all consoles now, really. Um, so yeah, it's just like it's just a, a different world. Matthew, here's something I was curious about. Um, so if you deducted the Switch games that count as Wii U ports or remakes. Would this console have the strongest lineup of Nintendo published games ever? I've been umming and ahhing about this one. When you put it in the plan, I was like, hmm. <laughs> I find the console's quite hard to rank in that way because I guess, like, what they're doing at different times is a lot of it's down to, like, personal taste. You know, you've got the fundamental, like, 2D era versus 3D era. I feel like there's been, like, bigger revolutionary leaps on previous consoles and that in a way dominated the stories of those consoles so like n64 is the birthplace of 3d nintendo and because of that it takes like a hugely important place in like the nintendo console history you know they're sort of riffing on that arguably there's no other leaps i wouldn't even say that those kind of leaps on switch but i think the thing that does define switch and it goes back to what i was saying about like these teams having the kind of leeway just to make the best games they can like it feels very comfortable in its own skin now that might be because the switch is a huge huge sales success you know it is so vast and it has the kind of audience which does buy kind of quote-unquote core games which means that basically any core game Nintendo does make is is guaranteed like enough of a success to justify itself mm. and maybe having that safety net has allowed them to just like relax and really like just get into the kind of nuts and bolts of what makes each individual franchise tick which I think is the the thing which really defines Switch for me is is this sense of like everyone's doing like exactly what they're meant to be doing but you know there's not a lot of shared philosophy between those games you know it's, it's a real crying shame we don't have like the Iwata asks anymore because one of the reasons we maybe have this sense of we or definitely why I have this sense of like the we library's identity is I could see the shared thinking through those interviews mm. a lot of that philosophy is now like hidden or like lost to us annoyingly in terms of things I've just like enjoyed it probably is the strongest lineup you know I think other consoles have games I've truly loved like I you know I I, st- I still think I love Mario Galaxy more than I love any Switch game Mm-hmm. but there's so much more out of it like i'm really envious of people who get to cover it I and mean, this would be like such a beautiful console to make a magazine about because there's lots of games they're super dense with like playful ideas they seem very like mag friendly like the kind of person you'd be into a games magazine i think would be into switch a, a little part of me sad that like they didn't do it uh in uh, 2014 when i'd just <laughs> become the editor of a failing nintendo mag <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure I've got a few thoughts on this. So I think that, like, I mean, as a Wii U owner, I don't really mind the fact that the the console has just been used as the basis for all these ports because to most people, they were fresh, they were new. 
Um, mm. Like the only kind of caveat is that like um, it, it hasn't had a fresh Mario Kart, you know. Um, so I suppose yeah. like that's where it makes it tough to do a sort of like apples to apples comparison. Um, yeah, them. that's true. Um, so. And there's a few games like that where they are like either enhanced remakes or ports, or there are, there is like a there is no kind of quote unquote new version. Um, so it is quite hard to make that comparison. But I, I do agree with you. Like, um, I, I there's a few things I love about the Switch. The one is the price of the games has that is like spot on. That I really love that Nintendo is holding the line on forty quid games. Um, just because I think that that's what a lot of people want. Um, more than like the 70 quid games as lavish as they get um, and like as amazing as many of those games are um, 40 pounds versus 70 pounds is like a, a massive difference to a lot of people um, so I love the fact that like I can basically basically always get a switch game I want for about 35 36 quid that's really good it's allowed me to build like quite a nice little kind of library physical games are still really nice to own on switch for, uh, for sure but yeah like it also means that you just feel a bit less self-conscious about taking chances on a first party thing you might not think you're interested mm. in so yeah i think that is i think that that is good because that unlocks a kind of like impulse purchase buying element to it and like you say it means it means that everything nintendo has published has somehow sold more than a million copies no matter how weirdly kind of like targeted the game right. otherwise seems um, one game in our Hall of Fame we'll discuss. I think fits that category quite nicely, and it has it has also proved to be a place where uh, certain types of games I didn't think would would return have kind of thrived in unusual ways. Um, again, that just goes one game on our on our list that we'll get to. So yeah, I don't know. It's um it's okay to just see it as a collective. Most people missed out on the Wii U. There's no benefit to those games just being left on Wii U and not salvaged. So. As an overall kind of project, the Switch is just an enormous success and fun to be a part of. Um, yeah. Yeah, the only thing I want is a more powerful one. That's the only thing I want. I suspect it's the only thing you want too, Matthew. The only other thing I'm a little bit sad about, and we've definitely mentioned this in previous episodes, is that that Nintendo have merged everything on Switch. You know, basically everyone they've got is making Switch games. They've merged their handheld side of the business and their home console side of the business. And I feel like there is a tier of portable game development or portable design thinking that they've mastered over like 30 years that isn't necessarily represented. They're obviously making loads of great retail home console experiences that you can also play portable. But considering you know how many teams they folded in, you know if you think of like how many Zeldas you've got, between Wii U and 3DS, and we've not had one since launch on Wii. Oh, well, Link's Awakening, sorry. But that's external group. Um, does that bother you at all? <laughs> um, I think there's a, it's a fair point, because if you think about things like Street Pass, um, Nintendo was massive on these ideas that were built around portable play, or even things like, yeah. the, like the pedometer for Pokemon Heart Gold and Soul Silver. Like they, they thought a lot about the experience of taking a console with you and what that means and and yeah undeniably shaped the design of a lot of those games and so they kind of instead all of these games sit in this slightly odd space between um between like uh handheld and home console um which i don't think is like a massive issue but i do think it does no. eliminate a tier of games or it makes some games like a new WarioWare seem a bit weird when you sell them for forty quid. It's, it's well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's 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 maybe like a better representation. It feels like everything has to be slightly lavish. Everything has to justify itself as a home console game, mm. and they largely have. Like I don't think there's there's many like big big missteps in there. But 
even the like the you know the the, the kind of the tentative steps they were making with their own like digital download games you know your kind of pull blocks and all that kind of stuff we, we haven't seen like smaller things from them like we've only really seen lots of very good 40 pound games and maybe like the you know how you make lots of 40 pound games is you basically knew the people who are looking at those those other tiers of of games i definitely feel like something's lost the kind of time waster games i don't want to be so crude as to call it like tetris the tetris games but yeah. you know things like that you know i feel like they haven't made like a proper like amazing puzzle game at all this generation box box boy and box girl does that count but that's probably it yeah there's arguably no real connection back to the game and watch sort of heritage on switch which is this is the first nintendo console where you could say that is the case um yeah so that is a sea change arguably they don't need it because they have opened the gates to indie games and like why compete with what is itself an incredibly vast and successful industry if you are looking for a load of 15 quid gems you are well catered for like nintendo do not need to do that where in the past they arguably did need to supply those games because they didn't have those kind of strong indie lineups they needed stuff to kind of convince you that their digital shops were worthwhile it does feel like a little bit like looking a gift horse in the mouth to kind of complain about it because i'm fundamentally not disappointed with what we do have (laughs) yeah i also think that like there's there's even with new hardware potentially on the horizon i do think there's a probably 30 at least 30 games from nintendo we haven't seen yet that, that it's made um or that it's making <laughs> there's a big rumor that like they're way ahead on development of a few of these games that you know xenoblade got brought forward of course the third one um there is a rumor that there's a fire emblem game that's just done <laughs> and just right. waiting in a box somewhere that hasn't been announced but exists <laughs> and it was leaked a few weeks ago um there is no other games publisher on earth where i think this is the case where you've got like a game completed and sat in your back pocket but you know they've invested big time in in software this generation but i think that a lot of maybe a lot of its key moments are still to come hence why it's nice to do a kind of an evolving um hall of fame yeah um, for sure in assembling a Switch Hall of Fame, Matthew, what factors must we consider? What boxes do you think we need to tick? I'll give you my sort of like take on this. So yeah. it's like I said earlier, I think it has to be a mix of those big indies and those big Nintendo exclusives. Like that's that's essentially the those are two prongs of, of what I can use to make this list. Like I was thinking less about ports from other consoles that maybe would run better on those consoles, just because some of those ports are really impressive, but they, like you, this isn't necessarily the destination I go to to play those games. Um, so yeah. instead, I focused on, yeah, like I say, indies that are a perfect fit for um, for the, the hardware, and then, yeah, kind of core Nintendo exclusives. I think that's where the Hall of Fame has to come from. How about you? I've definitely forced an entry that kind of breaks breaks with that. But I think it's one of the very rare third-party games where it is just so beautifully executed and such a perfect genre fit for the console. Like, it feels like a Nintendo game that Nintendo didn't make to me, which is why I made the case for it. But, yeah, outside of that, I think, yeah, that that, that roughly feels right. You know, uh, particularly in curating the huge indie space, there are some things which just are such a good like form fit for this that yeah they really jump out obviously we're only covering five there's loads of these to come so um please don't be like where's x you know it's probably going to come in the later list <laughs> yeah that's the other thing is that with the with the big nintendo exclusives we're portioning them out so we're not doing all the obvious ones at once so i would say we've got 
a couple of obvious ones, and then the rest is yeah. a bit less predictable. So, hmm. yeah, I think it'll be good. But um, yeah, I think I think that's what it's got to. That's essentially what it's got to tick. Um, I think like the there, it doesn't necessarily matter if those if those games are like multi-format games, those indie games, as long as like they fit the Switch well, which so many of these games do, because um, they are the kind of like um, handheld friendly, highly quaffable <laughs> kind of like play it for 25 minutes um put yeah. your console put your console on standby experience there's a lot of that that category like you say is very well taken care of by indie so um yeah so matthew any more to add on the switch or should we take a break and get into our hall of fame yeah let's get into the hall of fame all right Welcome back to the podcast. So in this section, we've selected our first five games to be, go in the back page uh, Nintendo Switch Hall of Fame. Um, that's, you know, a very prestigious title. So if Miyamoto wants to put that on the boxes of any of his games, just get in touch. We'll <laughs> sign off the licensing rights on, on our logo for £10,000 a pop. I think that's a good, a good deal. So yeah, drop me a line. So yes, Matthew, we, as you say, we... Um, we have got some, probably some more obvious classics to come down the line. We plan to, on making this the first of, of many episodes of this type. I would say probably even more frequent than the Indie Games Hall of Fame because we're very much in our element here. So yeah, like, um, should we talk a bit about the fact that we've decided to just pick five games instead of 15? Like, um, I don't know about you, but I, I love the Indie Games Hall of Fame episodes, but they're a real mad rush to get through them. And it's, yeah. a bit, it's a bit exhausting to talk about that many games so quickly. I think so too. Looking at the list... Yeah, we've not really talked about any of these games before, so just a chance to kind of like weigh in on them before we get to the games of the the year episodes where we do get to talk about them. Mm. Yeah, having a bit a bit more space, a bit more room to breathe. Let's dig into what makes them really special. Would you like to reveal the first inductee, Matthew? It's a daring, controversial choice. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Super Mario Odyssey. Probably one of two obvious picks, I would say, in the in our list here. But um, Matthew, why don't you do your big pitch on Odyssey and, and where it fits into the overall kind of Mario canon? Before we get to Odyssey, like very quick point about Mario Galaxy. Part of the brilliance of Mario Galaxy for me was that. It kind of made me realise that what I wanted from 3D Mario wasn't Mario 64 or Sunshine, which were these, like, large land masses with maybe more of a focus on sort of, like, exploration freedom rather than actual kind of mechanical doing. I even said this in my original Mario Galaxy review. Like, a lot of the Mario Galaxy levels feels like, what if you just took the actual bits you interact with in a Mario 64 level and just chopped out, like, all the boring grass in between? There's a lot of walking between interesting things in Mario 64 and Sunshine. Not to do them down, like, obviously, Mario 64, incredibly important game. But it kind of, like, rewired my brain a bit. But then what happened with... Super Mario Odyssey and why I think it is so special is that actually I think it did justify that idea it it kind of flipped me back not so much I still think Mario Galaxy is where it's at for me but I think this is a a game which 
gives you these large sandbox levels to explore, but also never loses sight that fundamentally Mario is a platforming action hero. He isn't a guy who's meant to walk around boring expanses. It shows that you can do those bigger levels as long as you have like a density of playful ideas that's sort of high enough. And more importantly, I think it finds solutions to the scale of the level in its central mechanic, which is that Mario can capture enemies by throwing his magical hat at them. There's a hat called Cappy, and then he takes over them, and he basically becomes that character. And it just happens that in lots of the levels, there are captures which transform movement and speed up movement and take an expansive desert or a huge ocean of water, or a vast field of flames, and turn them into something which, you know, visually can impress with the size, but doesn't ever get boring to move around. Uh, Like the Luncheon Kingdom, which is this big food world, there's this huge ocean of, like, pink lava. It's got a really weird art style, this game. Like, every level is kind of, like, almost feels like it was made by a different art director. So it's got this, like, really garish pink lava. But you can turn and possess a fireball and then swoop, you know, bounce around this thing. And, you know, so that, that kind of, like, negates some of that. Or when you go into the Seaside Kingdom, you can take over this thing called a... I think it's called a gusher? Or maybe it's a gushin which is like this sort of like blowfish which um, sort of shoots water out to sort of squirt itself around levels. And all of a sudden, you know, what would have been like a, a vast expanse of water that you had to very slowly swim through becomes, oh, it's this huge playpen for throwing around this amazing kind of like pufferfish thing. That's really cool. Or uh, likewise, uh, Sand Kingdom, which when I first went into this, this is one of the earlier kingdoms in the game. It's the big desert kingdom. It's got this like Mexican Day of the Dead vibe to it i saw all this empty sand and i thought oh no they've they've married 64 it again like i'm not into this but then very quickly uh you get to possess bullet bills and fly them around the airspace and then all of a sudden you're like well i appreciate having all this space that i can like throw around this bullet bill and really enjoy this character so i actually think the game manages to like zoom right in on like really specific platforming challenges but at the same time, find something to do with all that space, which Mario 64 and Sunshine didn't. It comes close to Galaxy. Like It's it's probably a top 10 game of all time for me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I think is funny is, like um, before we get into the list, I have to talk about Mario Galaxy. I feel like you all... You, everything with you comes back to Mario Galaxy one way or well, another. Um, I, yeah. I, I just wanted to explain that the backstory of like where my head was at. Yeah, yeah. The other thing with Odyssey, and one of the great pleasures with it, it's probably the only big Nintendo fast-party game that I've had no professional involvement with. I didn't write a single word about this game. Mm. I only appreciated it as a punter. Like They announced it after O&M had closed, so I only ever saw it from afar. I didn't get to preview it. I didn't get to review it. I remember reading uh, the Edge 10 review of this and getting so excited in a way that I hadn't, like, literally since before working on games magazines. It really took me back to being, like, 
you know, a teenager reading N64 and reading the Mario 64 review and going like, oh, holy shit, this is going to be so good. That, re- that Edge review is absolutely amazing, by the way. A secret who writes these things, but uh, Edge Mario Odyssey reviewer, uh, you, know, you are seen, <laughs> I would say. I remember there was a very specific detail in that review. He talked about, cause this, this is back when like the HD rumble on the pad on, on, on Switch was like a bit more exotic and people were kind of still quite into it and they didn't really like, you know, it's kind of faded over time. Like no one ever talks about HD rumble. But he talked about in the Seaside Kingdom, the waters are like uh, fizzy, like fizzy pop. You know, they're, they're kind of bubbly and there's this very light like fizz when you're in the water in the rumble i remember reading that and being like this game is going to be the best game i've ever played (laughs) (laughs) like what a what a beautiful tactile nintendo thing you were like oh if it's if it's good enough that it's stuck with the reviewer like i have to like feel that Mm. um so that's yeah and more broadly with this game i think the other thing that's like absolutely like amazing apart from like them really getting their head about how to do this kind of like more freeform open Mario is uh, the capture system itself basically an opportunity for uh, EAD Tokyo to show off that they can build like infinite mascots and make them all amazing like these are standalone characters basically when you take control of them they each handle differently but they all handle like so beautifully you think oh well, you could make a game out not out of all of them some of them are pretty basic like you can possess like a rock or a cactus and it just like bounces around a bit and that's more just like a visual gag um but i would say even like just hopping a, a cactus around is like 10 times better than like any playstation platforming mascot has ever been <laughs> um <laughs> what a surprise that you think that. <laughs> Lol, lol, lol. Well, that, um, the funny thing is, Matthew. Sorry, just to cut you off there, but like, <laughs> I was going to say that that was what going to be my p- big question. Actually, was that famously like the um, the philosophy with Mario sixty four was that math, uh, Mario must feel comfortable to control, fun to fun to control, even if you're in an empty room, basically with just some like o- random objects. Um, mm. So here, have they applied that philosophy to every single character you can possess in the game, essentially? Does each one feel like it's had that same level of care? There's definitely a scale. Like, none of them are, like, howlers. Some of them are just, they more, you know, there's, like, a taxi you can possess, and it's, it's basically just a cutscene. Like, you, 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 you possess this taxi, and it drives off. Like, you don't really control it. Or there's, like, a space rocket that you possess, and then you just press B to, like, charge up the launch, and then it fires off. Not all of them are, like, fully thought out. But there's a couple which are absolutely amazing that I wanted to pull out, which I think in themselves, you're like, another platforming company would be incredibly lucky if they hit on any of these. Right. So there's a thing called a tropical wiggler, which is, you know, like the wiggler, like with its long segmented bodies, but it basically accordions out. So it kind of stretches its body so its front paws can hit a new platform and then it kind of pulls its ass back across. So you can basically use this like sort of stretching mechanic to sort of move around the world. But what makes it is it's got this like like literal accordion sound to it. You know, when it kind of uh, stretches and then and then um, retracts again. So there's this really lovely sense of it being this like physical, like wheezing thing. That's a beautiful touch. There's a thing called an uproot, which is like 
like a sort of like an onion thing whose legs stretch upwards. I guess it's quite like the Tropical Wiggler, except it's like a vertical version. But then there's all these puzzles about like scaling these towering platforming gauntlets where you have to stretch up and then bounce into it. Actually, it reminds me of the. Did you ever play James Pond where he stretched? Oh yeah, yeah. You know the do, <laughs> and if something touches his feet or body, he's like fucked. That's sort of the mechanic here, except like it's in three D and feels like really lush, unlike James Pond, which feels horrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the standout is uh, this little bird called Pokio. When you first get him, you're like, oh, I don't really get this because he's got like a long beak, and when you press the attack button, he just sort of like jabs forward with the beak, and you're like, eh, you know, it's just a guy with a big spike basically but then you realize that he can embed his beak into soft surfaces like wood of this big japanese pagoda type level that he's based in once his beak's embedded you can like elastically flick him down and then send him pinging up embed his beak again and so you get into this rhythm of fling in bed fling in bed that is a standalone platforming game right there it's not quite the same as this but there was a game on ds called donkey kong king of swing where you were like climbing 2d walls by like swinging between grab points Hmm. like pokio is i would say like a versatile and tactile enough thing that it could be the like standalone star of of like a smaller download title maybe that it's just like one idea in a game of many i think is just an indicator of like like how fucking wild this game is like it's just mechanically sublime like i don't think there's like a really like jarring duff note in it yeah i suppose like um the question is when are we getting another one matthew because oh yeah unlike breath of the wild there's no sequel to this on the horizon you know they obviously did the the 3d world port with bowser's fury the expansion which is obviously like a new chunk of game that they worked on there is a lot of celebration about that game and a lot of buzz about it and i think the expansion is wonderful but i i hope that doesn't indicate that that's the exact direction they're going in odyssey is much better than that (laughs) so i you know i I would take it i would take an odyssey 2 for sure before i took another i don't want another 3d 3d world mario like that that doesn't interest me it feels like there was a sort of statement of intent of having this and breath of the world like lead the charge on this console right like these are the generation defining sort of big brain sort of like games um that nintendo is sort of putting on this platform these signature games so i i can't see like another mario scaling back like i feel like this strain of mario game will always exist like this sort of push it further in 3d in terms of like ideas and worlds and abilities and um yeah yeah like i don't think that will go away i think nintendo like must enjoy that 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 innovation must be as important to them as it is to you it's just maybe like not the only thing they're focused on you know the thing with bowser's fury is that some would say oh that is the next step in that it's the whole game in one world these are open worlds with which you can sort of you know quote unquote open worlds the individual kingdoms that that's a game where like every level exists in the same world which arguably is like a step along from this but the actual world that joins them like it's it's basically like a load of 3d world levels floating above a big lake instead of loading screens you have nessie (laughs) yeah right and it's like well you know great that isn't really what i want if there's somehow a mad thing where there are like land masses of the complexity of a mario odyssey kingdom and 
you don't fly between them, but they're all part of like some mad open world. Maybe you combine the two, but the density, invention, and I would say difficulty and challenge as well of Odyssey's higher are really, really important. You know, another thing I really like about Odyssey is that you can get to the end of it relatively easily in terms of like the, the number of power moons you need to collect is quite low, but really to mine the levels of everything. It does scale. Like there's some, there's some really like juicy challenges in this, and some really great platforming as well. Like it, it has plenty of secret areas which basically are self-contained galaxy levels in the way that Galaxy would often whisk you to quite an abstract platforming landscape. There's tons of that here, and here it also has all those different captures for you to play with. So it can go, well, you've learnt the bullet bill for this level, and you've done the stuff you need to do for the kind of core kind of story mission of this level, but then let's have these abstract levels where you have to really master the bullet bill. And, you know, I really, really appreciated that. Like, I think, if, if anything, it's probably a better balance of difficulty than Galaxy, which you know is, is never a, a screamingly hard game but this is this has got some really nice stuff an amazing end game i mean the the levels that unlock at the end are like super super challenging in the way that you're constantly like harvesting these moons to unlock more stuff is really satisfying one thing i don't like in odyssey is there's a little bit of padding where uh, every level has like a handful of power moons you have to buy from a shop with the currency that's where this feels more like mario 64 or sunshine this is just busy work you've just filled this landscape with coins because you've got all this size and you need to put something everywhere making me buy power moons that's a bit lame compared to like how fun most of them are to unlock well okay cool so the 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 challenging element is is a key thing to pull out i suppose because 3d world isn't that challenging um, mm. it's like the opposite of challenging really it's just incredibly simple especially with two people that level of like escalation which you know I think is is like the big gulf between galaxy and 3D land and world is that I don't think 3D land and world the, the levels like seem to be missing the really wild third act that I, that I kind of hope for them they always end with the flagpole which is just a real downer for me odyssey definitely has a sense of every level has a couple of like really wild things or like some crazy bosses i mean there's a really mad kingdom in this game which is people jokingly refer to as the dark souls kingdom because you go to this like evil dark gothic castle and you fight like quite a photorealistic dragon which looks like something from a from a from a software game <laughs> right, with okay. almost like lightning and everything that's odd there is a slight incoherence to this game but that's also <laughs> Part of the fun of, like, what the fuck is this thing going to do next? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, uh, Mario 3D World had a cake world, Matthew. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you Philistine. But, um, <laughs> no, that's interesting. Maybe that maybe that was a deliberate homage. I don't know. Maybe they just, yeah, I don't know. But it sounds like right. the um, that is the roll of the dice you take where you just change everything on a dime. I've got nothing to back this up, but it feels like the work of a slightly, like, younger, like, more energetic team. You know, a key thing that is happening is that, you know, you're beginning to see the transition from, like, old management to new management. You know, the people who were directing the Mario Galaxies of yesteryear are now running the overall teams. They're now, you know, Kazumi, you know, Mr. Mario Galaxy, is basically the head of their first-party development. His skills are kind of being applied to everything now, which maybe explains this general, like, step-up in quality across the board. It's a really wild game, so dense with ideas, I think it's really replayable, which probably should be a factor in this Hall of Fame. This is a game you could come back to, like, every couple of years, and you will have forgotten, like, half of it. 
just because it throws so much shit at you. Different things will sort of stick with you every time. The ideal first pick there, Matthew. Yeah, be... Sorry, I feel like I've talked at you about Odyssey a lot. No, it's okay. <laughs> like It's a game that like I have played, but just hasn't, just hasn't clicked with me on that level yet from the few hours I've played. But um, I think like I did have the sort of the slight question of what is the scale meant to be with some of the levels I played where they did feel expansive but I hadn't really properly interacted with them in terms of like uh, possessing these characters and exploring them in that way and that's obviously what you need to do to get the most out of this game. I'm not going to pretend that the scale is my favourite thing it's more that they like fix the problems they had with it. Right. This game is best when it's super super focused a, a single platforming gauntlet or an amazing boss encounter. Like, the bits that are good in this could basically be in a Galaxy game. Like, the best, the very best bits. Mm. But they, yeah, they justify the whole package, and you get a funny cat with eyes, so that's good. <laughs> okay, good. Um, which seems like the sort of bullshit you'd normally stand against, but um, when Nintendo and, does it... And one of the greatest bosses of all kind, according to my boss list, old Knuckle Toe Tech. <laughs> <laughs> Remember him? <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, that was uh, what a duff. <laughs> what a duffer. <laughs> It was fun. It was funny hearing you describe trying to describe Mario bosses on a podcast. It seemed it seemed phenomenally tough, but I thought you did a good job. Um, <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, so this is why we had to do five games, not fifteen, because if the, all the entries are that long, this would be an eight-hour podcast. So that's <laughs> not that I mind. It's always good to hear Matthew talk about uh, Nintendo stuff. That's you know one of the one of the things that keeps those Patreon bucks rolling in. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> okay, so second game in the Hall of Fame is Metroid Dread. This is one I pushed for, but Matthew didn't stand in my way, uh, which is nice. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's so, so good. So it was both of our game of the year last year, um, eventually. like I, It wasn't in the podcast I recorded, but afterwards I was like, oh no, this was actually, um, this should have been number one. Um, instead of Ratchet and Clank or whatever I had at number one, I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Ratchet and Clank, but it, it was a while ago. So yes, this is uh, Mercury Steam's first attempt at like a proper original metroid game a 2d metroid game after making the castlevania games for konami and then making the um uh, samus returns on 3ds so this was the next step along um <clears throat> i've not played samus returns matthew but if there's one thing from playing some of the older metroid games off the back of playing this the thing that uh, there's a few things that, that really kind of like stand out but obviously like the um the level of detail they can put in the environments in terms of like you know, sort of sound design, visual design, and sort of small things going on in the background, and and like really kind of bringing identity to these to these places. That's one thing. The other thing is that in terms of like how Samus plays, it feels like two D Metroid has never felt like an action game in the way that this does, like a really athletic action game and precise action game. The the kind of this feels like a two D Metroid game made for like an analog stick, whereas the previous ones were made for a D pad. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, that I think I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah um so yeah i think that like as someone who's never massively clicked with this genre this was the one that got under my skin and i think it's because these games are are typically about you know you um you lose samus lose their abilities at the start then you go around kind of getting them back and then you kind of accumulate this vast arsenal of stuff and as you do um you can unlock new new places new paths to different locations and um, sort of like steadily progressing um by finding new ways to kind of navigate the environment this does that too but um, there's a there's maybe more of a guided hand, but not but mm. not so much of a guided hand that you don't feel like you're still achieving things when you do it. Um, but like it, it's not a game we ever really get lost. And I actually think that's like quite a feat of design when you think about there's so many different interconnected 
parts of this game different tunnels and things like that but um it never overwhelms you if this is like your first metroidvania but i think it's still mm. really satisfying even if it's like your 20th game in this genre i think that's fair like the, the big criticism if there is one that that you hear from people is that it's like too linear for a metroidvania that mm. people really want to be feel like they've just been dunked and left completely alone by you know both you know narratively and also by like the you know the guiding hand of the designer there are definitely like more linear stretches of this and it kind of pushes pushes you around but like within those stretches there's plenty of reason so like every time you get a new ability there was always a handful of cubbies that uh, you know i had in my mind that i wanted to return to to then explore and could so i felt you know it ticked the box in terms of like i felt like i was an, uh, an evolving character at all points i think it has the difficulty particularly in like some of the boss encounters that i felt finding the power-ups and finding things actually was worthwhile mm. like a big big beef i have with metrovanias is where exploring for all the hidden doodads is basically just there to justify exploring you don't really need them here i felt like the challenge was such that i did want to find everything which i actually think is like true of most metroid games definitely true of metroid prime which was like brutally difficult when i first played it i thought and if it does have a more linear eye i think it is uh also a very cinematic eye so it knows to kind of like how to mix up certain areas like when you return to them are kind of recontextualized by like changing conditions or like limitations on what you can do or the fact that you need to find a new power which then suddenly kind of transforms that area again you know i think they're i think they are like very very good at at finding like variety within what is basically like jumping around a load of sort of sci-fi corridors yeah i think like that that cinematic eye uh certainly you get it during the emmy sequences of course where mm. you're chased by these um these killer robots which um someone on discord pointed out this game sort of lifted from shadow complex they had a very similar sort of thing when you saw a, when i saw a screenshot of it i was like oh yeah that does look extremely similar to the emmy actually um, oh, right. But hey, you know, that game only exists because of Super Metroid. So um, it's basically, uh, you know, <laughs> basically just returning the favor by lifting that idea. But that, you know, that adds a slightly horror element, horror based element to to it where you're being chased and you know that you're going to be instantly killed. But then when you do finally find a way to stop the Emmy, that too is a cinematic moment, isn't it? It's like the camera moves as you kind of like you're firing the cannon to um, to destroy these extremely powerful um, synthetic beings. When the camera like shifts into the world in like sort of over the shoulder sort of semi 3D, I, I thought that was just such a beautiful touch. Like it really puts you in her shoes and in her shoes for the coolest specific moment of the game. Yeah, for sure. It, it really kind of punctuates each kind of like um, part of the game, I think. Just gives mm. you this massive action moment that you kind of carry on exploring. And I think that the other thing is that this game feels lavish because the environments look nice, but the animation is phenomenal. Oh. So the way things move and the way Samus moves is like that's where it looks like a blockbuster, even though it's a 2D game. I've always loved the way Samus moved. The, the challenge with Samus is that she's meant to be this incredibly like reactive bounty hunter, but also like she looks like a tank. So you're kind of you're thinking like weight and speed. And the way the game, like the game, different games capture that 
is uh, always different. Like, there's lots of different interpretations. There's a real sense of like clanking armor to her old like SNES sprite, particularly like the way it, the way it just sort of connects and moves together. It feels it feels very very mechanical to me. Here, there's this like liquid grace at times, like the way she like slips through gaps or like mantles platforms mm. is incredibly like lithe. But then when she smashes something, you are like. Fuck me! I would not want to be hit by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um this this game, the the rockets feel really good when you kind of have the like the homing version deeper into the game and you're just sort of selecting multiple targets and unloading them. Like they've they've it has really good gun feel essentially. The analog aiming arc as well, where you mm. can kind of control her gun arm for like real precision that feels like a modern vital touch and probably that like you say needs an analog stick to work and feels like a evolution of their character for like a modern control scheme yeah and i think as you were saying about how you remember these cubbies you come back to some of the like optional challenges in this game involve quite um absurd combinations of abilities like sprinting into like dropping a bomb into you know sprinting again and just all of and then like wall hopping like it asks you to do some quite absurdly specific stuff to to yeah. reach some of these optional areas and like um that's where there's like quite a high challenge ceiling i couldn't do all of those um I, or, yeah, I, yeah i had to watch loads of youtube videos <laughs> yeah because some of them are like the starting point for like where the maneuver begins is so far from where <laughs> you're trying to get you're like, this cannot be right. Like, there's no way I can sustain a move that starts what feels like several screens across. It's a wow moment when you realise the kind of level layout that you kind of took for granted is incredibly specifically built for, like, this one purpose. Mm. That wasn't a long atmospheric corridor. It was the exact run-up needed to trigger her sprint to then fire off and begin this, like insane combo i think it could maybe tutorialize those a bit better is the only thing i agree with that yeah like some of the phrasing on like how those moves link together is a little vague and some of them you kind of forget that you have or you don't use as much um yeah and so yeah and and how they can you can kind of chain some of them together is that's where there's some real like it's real finger gymnastics going on to (laughs) to do that yeah like uh, but that is like that is interesting that is action game dna and you know, mm. I've only I've been playing Zero Mission, but Zero Mission is not that at all, really. It's where I think there's that difference maybe comes from from this Mercury Steam game. Like I played Super Metroid Two, Matthew. It doesn't feel like that sort of combination of athletic kind of movement stuff is as much in the DNA of those earlier games as it is in this one. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But the most buried secrets require true mastery of like all her physical moves right and there will always be a tier of stuff in those games which recontextualize some of those moves or makes you realize like oh i haven't really mastered this move at all and it's quite daring that like the the actual kind of core story journey of these games doesn't tap into that a hidden layer of impressiveness in both the level design and the move set which is like i think you could feasibly just like never notice it or just not know it's there Mm. okay fair enough yeah so that's always been how, part of the dna go on how, how do you feel about the balance of difficulty outside the bosses and in the bosses because it's one of the interesting things i think in that there are these real spikes and then in between i feel like you don't really like run into anything nearly as difficult i just wonder if is there a better version of this where the pressure is more constant throughout or do you think the balance is is quite nicely struck it's true that you don't outside of bosses and sub bosses so like when two of the 
is it the possessed is it the chozo oh, those, sh- yeah, those shitty bastards yeah, yeah. Th- those things i f- when there were two of them at once they were an, i guess an example of like a non-boss that was actually like quite tricky yeah um, but outside of that in it's it's true it's not especially challenging i don't feel like the i was ever like troubled by the platforming or the regular enemies so much but um mm. I didn't mind it so much because I think the the bosses, which I, I didn't think were as tough as they weren't as tough as I thought they were going to be. The last boss is easily the toughest, and even then, yeah. like I think it was actually quite quite elegantly designed that boss. Um, I think it's okay to draw some of those spikes to those moments because then you're not frustrated when you're backtracking or I don't know. Mm. I, I I was I was completely fine with the difficulty honestly because like you say, there is still that extra layer of mastery if you want it. And yeah, that's the, yeah, and that, the and the Emmys too were hard. They were like they're not they're kind of kind of bosses kind of not i suppose but they are punctuated they you know they punctuate these moments the punctuate these long stretches of the game with like a, a basically a movement um and sort of stealth challenge um which is quite quite unusual but but works well um and they're, they're challenging in their own way so i think like the variety of ways it is difficult not so bad maybe maybe it could be more frequently challenging though i don't know um, yeah, no, I, d- I didn't have a big problem with it either. And, and you're right, like the bosses are, they're the hardest thing in it, but they're also incredibly fair and like they're, they're really old school pattern learning and recognition. And, and actually, you have such good control over Samus that they feel very fairly balanced to me. We all have to die a couple of times to learn the phases, but once you have learned them, you know, you, you are often defeating these things without taking like any damage by mm. the end you go from like dying to like the exact opposite of dying and that feels very old school but I, in, in a way i really really like yeah i didn't have a problem with difficulty otherwise i just think it's it's interesting that everything you're doing to better yourself really feels focused in on like you're making yourself better to improve the odds in specifically boss fights mm. rather than the everyday world or maybe it's because i am thorough that the everyday world doesn't feel quite as intimidating there might be a bit of that yeah it's like i i you know i I would like more missiles please so i will go and get some more missiles there there is that is true that that's how i kind of approach those um those optional challenges like do i think it's worth it based on what i think i need to overcome the bosses um do i tell you about how i thought i had to i i defeated the i'd fit the last boss in this now i thought that um because i fucked the like one fire your gun qte that happens after that that i would have to do the entire boss again and like <laughs> i screamed at my switch um because i because <laughs> I, I think you're meant to just like press one button and she fires that final beam to kill the the bird thing um right but i hadn't i didn't do that and it failed and i just thought oh fuck have i <laughs> and i was so i was so mad because I'd, I'd, I'd perfectly done this boss like you say i only really took damage in the last phase and I was like, oh my god, I've done the Sekiro thing where my brain is completely wired into what this game is now. <laughs> and then to lose on a basically a QTE, I was like so upset. But um, <laughs> it was okay. Mercury Steam had my back there. But um, there was one moment of horror. I kept playing this before bed and hitting these like horrible bosses just before bed. Yeah. And so I'd go to sleep in like a really angry mood unless I could sort of stay up and get through them. Um, oh, the angriest I ever got in this game was always when trying to time the fucking emmy counter attack and then hearing that noise that ding as it kind of like the little needle shoots into you like yeah and then while while just samus just kind of like flop like does this the slowest like slap in midair and misses it completely um just like that noise is like the sound of my sort of frustration that's the sound i would hear when i went to sleep at christmas last year um 
but yeah but no just just the right level of challenge i think um yeah. the, the future i want for metroid matthew is mercury steam 2 uh, 2d games like every three or four years and then a new metroid prime like two years after that basically every single time like that that would be the dream sort of like path for this series to me if they could somehow make those two coexist and it feels like this was a bit of a breakthrough game in terms of popularity for the series like i think it's the best-selling one in the uk ever um mm. and it won the game award of course for best game which is completely fair so is that kind of where, where you're at with it as well do you think we're, we're ready for more a, a higher quantity of these games as a as a species yeah absolutely and you think like they've done the hard they've done a lot of like the heavy lifting like making like the core character work so it'd be kind of like mad not to put her through the ringer more if they do do more the, the metroid story stuff doesn't really do it for me no um no way it's, <laughs> it's like super tough and <laughs> like it's 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 fine because it's like contained to the cutscenes. like i don't think it really impacts the game at all i felt the same about other m actually this this one i, th- I feel like yeah like I, that that's stuff i don't need but yeah, I, I it would be mad if if like Nintendo didn't like continue this relationship because it's clearly like w- working really really well for them. And if they do make a new Switch or an advanced Switch or a sequel to the Switch, you could just make an even prettier version of this. This feels like quite a tra- it's got this has got quite a traditional like upgrade path ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What was the the other thing I was going to say actually was that on the story side, um, our friend of the show Jay Bayless made a good point, which is the way you can tell this is not made by original nintendo metroid devs is that like the i think the chozo are treated as this like unknowable alien race throughout the series and then in this game like you just they just turn up and you fight a load of them and like that's where he thought there was like maybe that lack of sort of care over the mythology that maybe existed more um yeah. at nintendo but i mean the story is so sort of naff anyway who really cares I, yeah it's odd because i think the story like is the bit that like nintendo mainly control <laughs> right right like I think the story is is like Sakamoto's baby. He's like Mister Mr. Metroid. I think he's responsible for why the story is is as bad as it is. Right. Um. Because he did a. You can find. I don't think you can find the talk itself, but you can definitely find reports of like he did a GC GDC talk years ago, which was the one where he was saying about how inspired he was by Dario Argento films. <laughs> um. He's Famicom Mystery Club, Detective Club as well, is another of his. Admittedly, the the Argento stuff is like a bigger influence on Detective Club than Metroid. But he talked about like kind of tension and sort of thriller design and wider like narrative theory in a way that you never hear a Nintendo dev talk about. Like it's clearly a thing for him. So I think it is his baby. I think he is in charge of the story, for better or worse. Okay, good. A new Twitter thread, Matthew. Is Metroid Dread a giallo? That's like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, that's a good That's a good place to sort of like leave off then, I think. that's uh, Yeah, I fucking love that game. I love it so much. And so, yeah, this is the, the game of this genre that cracked me, much like um, Metroid Prime did years earlier, actually. Um, just like, didn't think I was wired for these games. And it turns out you just need the right one. Um and considering how busy this genre is, it is amazing this managed to stand out, even among the absolute, you know, m- the monstrous amount of competition, even on the Switch. Okay, next up, Matthew, this was one that you selected, and I think is a really cool one. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and talk about it? Yeah, uh, so I've picked Astral Chain, uh, which is Platinum Games' action detective sci-fi thriller. I think it's notable for being in a lineup of games which is kind of getting shakier by the year or not shaky by the year like platinum seemed to be 
sort of going off the rails a little bit, I would say, since their kind of original kind of glory days. Like, there have been hits along the way, like Wonderful 101, I absolutely loved. Obviously, their involvement with Near Automata and uh, this. Uh, and this, this to me, I think, is, is like the last truly great Platinum game, um, but also the one which gives me, like, big hope for Platinum's future because uh, it's directed uh, by a chap called Takahisa Tora, who is a uh, was a, is a designer there? He's the lead designer on Near Automata. He worked on Wonderful One Hundred One. Basically, worked very closely with Kamiya, uh, and he directs this with Kamiya supervising him. And there's quite a weird interview on VGC with Platinum Games. Uh, Andy Robinson over there uh, has like a really good relationship with Platinum and seems to do these like big yearly interviews just oh, about like the state they're so of play good. They're so, yeah they're so absolutely good. amazing like yeah. it's it's one of the most yeah like what a great relationship to have i mean it's it's, it's really interesting and there the, the you know the management in those interviews have, have called out torah as like their superstar developer like he's at he's like our main guy which if i was the other directors i'd feel a bit like <laughs> sad about but uh, <laughs> i don't think managers are meant to play favorites so publicly but whatever <laughs> You know, that's like me saying, like, my favourite staff writer was Joe Scribbles, <laughs> you know. Uh, obviously, I loved all my staff writers equally. Uh, I wouldn't do it, because it would be mortifying for the person. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is funny, actually, yeah. Um, um, but anyway, so that isn't why it's good, but it's interesting. This, 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 this game, which is, uh, yeah, they made in partnership with Nintendo, I actually think there is way more like nintendo influence in this than any of the game any of the other games platinum has made with them so like bayonetta 2 and wonderful 101 feel like for better or worse platinum games which nintendo published this feels like something where they had more of a hand in it in terms of like where it lands and stuff nintendo definitely had a big hand in the story which is why it's one of the more kind of coherent worlds which I will now explain to you. you, you ha- you've played a bit of this, right? Yeah, I played a couple of hours today. I was quite surprised by the tone of it, actually. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, so it's set in this futuristic city where you play as a cop, one of two twins. You can play as a male or female character. Uh, they're a lot more dialed down than your usual Platinum protagonists because they're basically like a blank slate. I think Platinum's characters can be quite obnoxious outside of their amazing action chops. Um, so I actually don't mind them in this mode. I think like less less of that is actually okay. And uh, in this world, these cops team up with these sort of giant demons that they have leashed uh, to them on cha- these sort of mental chains. Uh, these demons are called legions. And so what the game basically is, is a tag team action game where you control... Uh, a policeman and the legion they're chained to you yourself are very weak the legion is very strong so on a basic level you can send it out to fight things it kind of auto attacks for you you can take that up a notch and you can like do combos with it where you're hitting things with your baton and then you summon the demon to kind of like take part in your combos that's like the next step up but the what really elevates this and makes this like truly spectacular is um, you can take manual control of the Legion. So you're controlling the policeman on one analog stick uh, and then you steer 
the Legion on the other analog stick a little bit like kind of what you did in the wonderful 101 where you kind of drew patterns onto the screen to summon different things it's kind of got a similar pat in your head and rubbing your tummy kind of vibe as that <laughs> where you can take more direct control of the legion and set up like even more complicated moves and for me it really comes down to uh, the brilliance of the chain that connects them because it's like a visual metaphor for how the two things are like you know connected but it's also a physical item in and of itself so when you're controlling the legion you can do things like swoop the legion round an enemy so the chain kind of goes around them in a circular motion and then it locks that character down uh, it sort of uh, leashes them to the floor and then you can really wail on it or you've got other characters who like do these great big charges at you and when they do this you see this big red track on the floor which shows where the monster's going to charge and you can stretch the chain across that like a tripwire to trip and stumble the boss. All kinds of things. You can fire a legion up at a monster and then pull on the chain to pull yourself into the air so then you're into an aerial combo which feels like a very kind of Kamiya-ish touch. You can't jump otherwise in this game but you can get into the air that way. It's used for all these like navigation puzzles in these like big dungeons so it's not a crazy deep combat system it's definitely not like a bayonetta where you're mastering these basically like limitless uh, combos uh, but it is completely original it doesn't really feel like anything else it takes a while to get your head around but i think it introduces it in steps in a really elegant way i think it tutorializes it really nicely you can kind of go into this sort of like like vr training room to really get your head around it and kind of practice things so it kind of gives you a bit of room it doesn't just throw you into fights it that feels like a bit of a nintendo influence it's like a platinum game where you're given a bit of space for things to like bed in um it kind of feels like a best of platinum like there's loads of ideas lifted from other stuff like i say there's a bit of the wonderful 101 in the way that you uh steer the legion around there's there's different legions with different powers one of them has a sword and he literally has raiden's blade mode from revengeance where it goes <laughs> into slow motion and you control the blade chops to like slice through shields or cut monsters along seams that's so that's quite interesting it has the uh like chip rpg upgrade system of near automata in there as well so it really feels like this guy's basically harvested all these stuff that he's worked on in the past and brought it together with this very odd control scheme which feels like nothing else it's a true original in that sense and maybe i value that more than some others but just the excitement of the new and seeing something that's so sort of brash and different instantly got to me and 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 the way it like blossoms over the course of the game like it by the end i was just so sort of completely won over by this i I think it it is one of the best switch games yeah so um playing this today um in preparation for this episode uh i was actually like i was there thinking oh this is where the sort of like blockbuster platinum game sort of like minds have been since near automata which is the last game of theirs i played and i kind of like when i see them doing that babylon's full game doesn't quite look like my sort of thing um yeah and like i i've been you know i, I realized that this was a you know i had this experience in my switch collection the whole time and just not played it and then like it's it's got a lot going on um <laughs> but it, it is steady at introducing it um and it also like you say as for the kind of new player experience it kind of puts you i think it puts you in like casual mode by default and then like if you want to switch on like platinum literally platinum mode that's the name of the difficulty saying to turn it into more of a kind of like you know um sort of challenging action game you can do that but um it's designed to be sort of gentle when you when you sort of kick off mm. um maybe kind of like weird slave element to the the chained creature uh, the legion like a a slight element of that to it um there there, yeah. there is 
there is, I mean, like... Underlined by the opening cutscene. Like, it's, it's tricky. I think it's specifically, like, the chain imagery, like, really, like, hammers that home. Mm. Um, I sort of see them working in unison, and uh, as a result, like, I, you know, I didn't specifically think of them as, like, uh, like a master and <laughs> and a slave, you know. It, it was more like someone's bodyguard like a protector i think is more what they're going for but there is definitely that like i can understand where that thought comes from it did cross my mind at several points i was like hmm, yeah i'm not it... sure if i'd have gone with chain because it's so, so charged an image you know yeah that was the thing like it's it's like these relationships these symbiotic relationships exist in everything from persona to you know like final fantasy but there's never a chain <laughs> um <laughs> and they're cops as well so uh, it's, all yeah. of this all of this is unintentional i know it is but like um that was it's just weird that, that it's, yeah it's just oddly charged in a way that i wasn't quite expecting but yeah um, th- th- but not to that not to dwell on that too much matthew the um but yeah i think like um i'm sort of steadily getting used to how you make the most of the um the legion because when you start it's a bit more it's a bit more like like you say the basic level is it will just fight for you and so mm. the kind of mastery emerges later on like the the core aspect of controlling your character is not that exciting by itself they they are underpowered like you say but it's all about how they work it together in unison um and yeah it does actually it's actually one of the nicest looking switch games as well i would say yeah um just really nice cyberpunky art style they work with a particular manga artist on the start maybe not for everyone but it's got this sort of like slightly sort of cell shaded anime influenced but you know when it wants to like throw around mad stuff i think it can it can do like the platinum god in space scale without like breaking the switch which i think is like fundamentally important yeah and it also has like a quite a big variety of like other different types of action set pieces like vehicle sections and yeah times you're dodging things yeah one of the one of the kind of cute things about it is you know you are like a working police person in this and and the idea is that you're uncovering this sort of conspiracy in this city but there are levels where you go to regions of the city and basically perform your work as a police person now a lot of that work is a monster turns up and you have to use your legion to fight it but there's lots of like story beats where you you use the legion for all kinds of like weird stuff like eavesdropping on conversations tracking um, people like it, you know it kind of functions as a sort of all singing or dancing kind of batman detective mode and so it has these very slow story stretches where you're basically doing side quests which are about like helping the public you know there's one where you're like trying to deliver ice creams to people and stuff where you're collecting trash and there's periods where you forget that it's an action game at all and as a mixture of different styles it's way more successful than they've been in the past with this uh, you know i particularly think of like bayonetta when it's an action game fantastic but when it is a bit of a platforming game or there's a bit of like exploration around, around like a weirdly empty environment i always feel like they're a little bit kind of uneven you know it's sort of like i get why you want to have pace changes in here but just walking around trying to find like a health upgrade is a bit basic this feels this feels quite kind of coherent and complete as like a fantasy vision for this character and it's also like might be the only platinum game that sold more than a million copies because this right. is one of those weird cases where again because it's a switch exclusive people just went and bought it um right. so this was a success even though like these games are never a success that's the whole thing with platinum it's hard not to see them as being spot on for nintendo as, a, as collaborators just in terms of like you get the sense that with hd games it's slightly out of their grasp in terms of 
they've just not yeah. been able, they've not been able to crack them but this scale of game um for this kind of hardware they are perfect for so what i'm saying matthew is i should just buy platinum nintendo that'd be good that would be the best outcome ever um yeah. i would i would absolutely love that i mean the whole thing is that they're meant to be this like amazing independent outfit and i get that but their best work is with nintendo now i don't know if their processes are similar but i i think in astral chain the few interviews that there are with the director get some sense of what nintendo's role in this is like i say i think nintendo was quite big on like the story like i think the story may have even been written by someone at nintendo and also like their involvement every step of the way is this landing is this working it's like nintendo quality control and you know it's a thing i've either said about xenoblade i'll definitely say it in the xenoblade episode that is a vast jrpg that goes through like the nintendo quality control process and like what that brings to it is maybe what elevates it Hmm. and i think it's the same here i think they, they they sand off like some of the rough edges in a way that I don't think they did. Like, The Wonderful 101, as much as I love it, is not a particularly user-friendly game. Like, that felt like Nintendo leaving Kamiya to his own devices. This doesn't, and while I don't know if it's... I don't know if The Wonderful 101 is maybe, like, slightly purer and better for it. This one, I think, is, like, very coherent, given that it is, like, quite a balmy control scheme and action setup. Like, it's really unlike anything else, but... I think that they managed to make that work is is a, is a a really cool indicator of where they're at with Nintendo. They absolutely uh, want to crack the um you, one. There's like one player and one AI companion combat system element. They are they are, they are like laser focused on that. Um, yeah, it, it, I know, that's how I opened my VGC review. It's like you know, Scalebound is dead, but like the dream of Scalebound it is something that obsesses them i think because i've always i when when they announced scaleband way back when i remember thinking oh this basically feels like bayonetta and a playable wicked weave from that game yeah 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 you know he's always been into the scale of something small and something big and what happens when they work together this is i think their first and you know like probably most successful attempt to harness that it's yeah it's weird how that idea kind of continues because it's it's in you know not platinum but like in devil may cry uh, 5 you obviously have the character who fights with the summon, the big monsters. Mm. Um, is this like just a big idea from their Capcom days, which is like never gone? <laughs> it's just like stuck with them. I find that I find that very interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to see uh, the next form of that in Bayonetta three. Um, yeah, yeah. Here, here's the other thing, Matthew, is that like Tora is not working on Bayonetta three, so he's making something else. And I think they yeah. they teased out in one of those VGC interviews, right, that they that he is working on something special or something big. So yeah, whatever yeah. The, whatever the next step along is from Astral Chain, it's it's a mystery. It feels like there must be another near at some point, right? You would hope so. And he he was one of the senior game designers on that. That's the thing. Like I I think it, I yeah, I think it's either either Astral Chain two or it but I I, I just I don't know. It feels like it would be in there, but, you yeah. know. Well, wait, wait, I, I, I'd be happy with either. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, no, this is a cool game. I, I, like, Also, actually, this is a game, Matthew, where I saw this running on a Switch OLED, and I was like, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. Like, the, <laughs> just, I just, because I, I haven't really seen much of the Switch OLED, but I saw the colors just of this game in particular, because it's quite dark, um, sort of like cyberpunky art style, like that just looks so so good on that screen i did i did feel immensely jealous as i went back to my um my my og switch (laughs) um okay great so next one matthew is one i forced into here so um fourth game is into the breach so this is from the makers of ftl subset games it is essentially a roguelike 
uh, sort of series of board game style Advance Wars like challenges where you control three mechs in this turn based setup on a variety of different maps which have different sort of features on them. And it's basically a game of like uh, pushing monsters around, these kind of kaiju style. Uh, sort of like big creatures and the objectives can vary from like defend a building from um, something happening defend some missile silos from being destroyed try not to kill a certain type of enemy so you can capture it for research the challenges vary and the the the, the game plays out in just a few turns each time you just get like several turns and then like the mission is over um and then um you kind of have permadeath off, off the back of that um and uh, the the mechs vary massively in in sort of style. So the first few you get are kind of like your basic. They'll fire missiles and then um, and kind of like attack uh, to damage these aliens. But um, the sort of like the wider thing you're trying to achieve in this is to push them around the map into either each other or into different obstacles. So let's say like you um you know you you sort of push you pushed one monster into another and you kill both those monsters at the same time. Sometimes mm. you have to do that in order to actually like complete the map just because it's there's not enough turns to kill everything otherwise and you might and one of your objectives might be kill every everything on this map inside the next few turns and so um you sometimes get these incredibly elaborate setups where you're getting like artillery fire from miles away to nudge an enemy right and then you send your big mech lad forward to do like a power punch to knock the enemy back into another enemy and it's this whole thing of like thinking strategically about well how can i push these enemies together and do the, the right amount of damage sometimes you'll fire a missile into the middle of three enemies that will knock all three of them out in an outward circle in in, in different uh. directions so um it's it's really clever how deep that system is um and like the way the different types of mechs do that is some mechs all they're all they're really built for is to like push enemies across the map and you'll get one that can basically push one enemy um from its, its square to the other side of the map completely and then you get some who are like um aren't really big on pushes but can set fire to the environment and um so that will like do progressive damage to different enemies but it will also spread um chaotically across the different maps you'll get some enemies who have like beam attacks that fire through an entire line of enemies so if you can nudge all the enemies into a row you could potentially kill all of them with one shot if you were like um clever enough to do it so there's a real like really high skill ceiling to this game um, underpinned mm. by this quite mournful uh, sort of tone um, and like just the tiny little bits of writing that bring the world to life um, pilots who kind of recur you can level up the mechs as you play um, obviously progress is not permanent but then you can um, you, but you, but it's cool that you can sort of like add different weapons to your mechs and um, give them sort of health boosts and things like that um, when your pilots die um, <laughs> the, the mech um the mech uh, will be like automatically controlled and that person will be gone that can be a bit bleak um if you're <laughs> failing a run you can surrender at any time and then send one of your three pilots um out of that reality um as kind of like as you've basically lost to these um to these aliens and um into your next game so they'll turn up again um with their sort of like um their individual bonuses intact so there's a quite a nice continuity between them. It's like Edge of Tomorrowy a little bit. Um, mm. It works really, really well. It has this beautiful art style that kind of. I think the reason I picked this a Switch is just it looks so perfect for a Switch. It's almost like a kindred spirit to Advance Wars or something. Um, thoughts on this one, Matthew? Yeah. So, uh, like, I've I've played like uh, you know some of this. I've never finished, it, and I know it's one I like. I really need to return to. But um, a question about the 
they're sending the pilots on you're sending a pilot on and retaining some of its stuff would you say that that is like integral to the game is this a a loop game where gradual improvement is what eventually wins the day or do you think you could win this regardless i think that like it sometimes helps because it's like you'll never have that much continuity because there'll just be times where you you fuck up and then that pilot's just gone and you were uh, just in one turn there's like a massive wipe and you're like oh shit that happened so you you can't bank on always taking one pilot along with you um, so you don't you're not you're not gradually chipping away at this game other than mastering its systems i guess yeah and also unlocking the new types of mechs so um that's oh, you are accumulating this um background currency and so you you see the silhouettes of the different mechs you can unlock and then as you as you get more coins you basically take a punt on the silhouette you sort of look at the silhouette you want and you pick <laughs> like picking from a storefront you go oh, i'll take that and then it's like one where yeah like um basically all all the, all the mechs can like do physical attacks to knock people around or um, they could do frozen beam attacks or whatever um i like the idea you're looking at a guy and he's got a huge thing you're like oh that's gonna be an amazing rail gun and then he's just holding a massive baguette <laughs> <laughs> you're like fuck fuck it's the baguette bot <laughs> shit <laughs> i knew i shouldn't have picked by his freaking silhouettes <laughs> um the other thing is that like um those pilots have like these um that the key thing about the pilots is they have different abilities that are just incredibly useful so there's one pilot who's got like an extra attack every single turn and that's really useful or an extra move every single turn or um basically one enemy that can sort of like um if you push back an ally you will repair with like one of your attacks you repair that ally when you knock them back so that's really useful if they're in close proximity to a monster you fire some artillery fire and it knocks the enemy back into i don't know let's say like some water so they die and it knocks your guy back so he's further away from the 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 line of fire your guy will heal and that other monster will be gone so um there there are some really useful ones there are like tier lists out there of like the different pilots and which ones you want to kind of get and take Mm. with you across playthroughs but yeah like i say because it moves too fast i think it's it's tough to like try and plan around having them really it's about finding the approach that that you actually like because there are just there's so many different variations in terms of like elements and styles of attack and how powerful the different different mechs are that it, it it's really the the loop of the game is figuring out which combination of those suits you the most and exper- yeah. experimenting with those new mechs and seeing if they work for you i do really love that i'm super drawn to games where they respect both like what's fun for you you know but still maintaining like challenge it's like whatever you pick it's probably going to be doable but it's going to be difficult but you also get to like express yourself rather than you know there's so many games you can like boil them down to like these are the winning parts and the rest of it's kind of trash what i have played of this it's like my favorite element of strategy games which is when which is where you know in like a turn-based game like a XCOM or a Gears Tactics or whatever is when it does play out more like a puzzle scenario where you kind of know exactly how things are going to play out obviously a lot of these games have like a big element of chance which like messes with that but you know one of one of the reasons I liked like Gears Tactics say over not over XCOM but I, I definitely like had more fun with it was I felt like there were more parts in that which you have full control over their behavior and so you can like ring together these really amazing kind of combos and this game feels like the purest version of that you know it's just like if you could guarantee x y and z what would you do with x y and z and i think that's so compelling i'm amazed no one had done it before really (laughs) yeah you even have things like flying units that perform airstrikes and stuff you'll have some that are like some squads that are just built around 
artillery fire purely and but they're up, mm. up close they're kind of in trouble um and you can do even do a randomized squad where you actually just pick it picks different types of units from across the various squads for you um and you can kind of go along with them so yeah there really is a, it encourages you to it basically gives you um medals and um and like extra currency for uh for completing the game with these different squads so you are incentivized to try each one see if you can actually do it the other key thing is um you can enjoy this game if it's on easy mode like no problem like that's a lot of the time i played this was on easy mode because i just found normal way too hard and like right it's really fun to play on easy mode it's still pr- it's still tough enough it's yeah challenging enough but um but can be quite empowering still too and it's it's satisfying to kind of make the end of it um and the, the finale is in this like collapsing volcano environment where you fall through like one one sort of like layer of it down to another and the tiles are disappearing but lava is appearing so it's a bit like risky for your squad but also you can potentially take out loads of enemies if you use the lava properly so this really good mix of like what abilities do you have versus what environment are you in there's like one map type where there's like a conveyor belt so you'll plan an enemy shot you'll plan a shot at an enemy almost like a turn ahead where it's like where will it be in like one turn or whatever um or there'll be tiles where you can sort of teleport between different parts of the map um or you can sort of like um collapse mountains and that'll do that'll do damage to enemies too it's just loads and loads to think about but um it's a very steady learning process you start with your one squad see if you can do it and then you kind of go from there um and it's my most played switch game by miles it's like more than 80 hours i've played this um and there's, an, and there's an advanced edition coming with um with new squads and and um new difficulty settings and stuff so that's uh it's cool it's frequently on sale just phenomenal perfect and the, the controls are really nicely done for the switch it was probably like a pc game at its heart um but yeah really nicely done on the uh on the handheld okay matthew we come to the final um entry for uh the, our hall of fame so this was one of yours but um i i can see why you uh why you went for it do you want to introduce yeah, it yeah so i've i've kind of bundled together the two ori games ori in the blind forest and ori in the will of the wisps these are two uh originally like xbox published games they are metroidvanias about a little forest spirit called ori who walks around this absolutely the most like gorgeous animated movie there's so many like layers of scrolling and little details and animation touches it's it just looks phenomenal um like quite unlike the other games on this list in that you know it is available elsewhere um the the case for it and why i think it should be in the hall of fame is that it is the most impressive port i've played on switch it's an absolutely like stunning like feat of engineering getting something which was made for xbox one and you know could trouble that console in places and they've like committed to getting it working on switch at like 60 frames per second it is a game where animation is like key so it being beautiful and smooth is very important i usually don't get hung up on this but i do appreciate like what a feat it is getting one of the best looking xbox games uh, to run on a switch like this without like uh, sacrificing its visuals I'm not like hugely into the tech behind these things but there's a really really good digital foundry article uh, on will of the wisps because you know they were like how the hell did you get this working and they they do all this like mad stuff where because the world is made of all these different layers all the different layers are like 
uh, dynamically shifting resolution so it can kind of like sort of maintain its pace at all times it's it's super super clever stuff if you are into that side of things if you are not you can just enjoy it as this really gorgeous metroidvania which is the other reason i've picked it is that i feel this is a sort of genre born from nintendo thinking this is one of my favorite metroidvanias outside of metroid and castlevania i think it's just such a beautiful fit particularly on handheld like this game is mesmerizing um on an oled switch even more so because it's got this really lush color palette which um with lots of like uh like contrasts between kind of shade and like these these uh, bright shearing sparks which obviously an oled really draws out so that's all great have you played the ori games how, how familiar are you with them as like what they actually are <laughs> yeah, so i've played uh i've played ori in the blind forest and it's the probably the kind of like widest gap between cute aesthetics and how fucking hard it is like right. i was like <laughs> how can a game this cute be this tough essentially um because yeah. it is it, it does not hold back as a as a metroidvania it's probably like one of the harder ones i've actually tried what's it what's interesting though is that a lot of its challenge comes from like platforming it's got it's got combat in it and the combat is definitely the weakest part of blind forest the original game and then they they basically make combat much bigger focus in the second one which is which is which is where the two differ yeah a really difficult platform just very demanding it asks it asks a lot of you, but I think it gives you in Ori this amazingly flexible character. Um, I'd liken it. Uh, I think she. I think she's a she. Uh, but it gives her this very maneuverable jump. I'd probably liken it to the new two D Raymans Origins and Legends. Lots of steerable aftertouch, but it's also a slight floatiness. But I would say you have a lot of control over it, and then it marries that to. Uh, the skill progression through the game which gives her all kinds of like wall running and dashes and things most importantly it gives you what i think is one of the best platforming abilities i've seen in a game which is the bash move which is where she can launch herself off of uh, certain grip points but more importantly enemies and their projectiles and so she can kind of like if, if something fires a big glob of toxic spit at her you can activate this batch uh, and it kind of freezes in air and then you choose your trajectory of where you're going to fire off you then fire off in that direction and you fire the projectile behind you so it's both a jump and can be an attack uh, in the way that you send these things around and what it basically lets them do is build these sort of seemingly impossible platforming gauntlets where all the things you're going to be leaping off of aren't there until you start jumping and things start firing at you so it could be like a big tunnel of spikes and as you enter it things start firing kind of homing projectiles at you and you're then climbing between those homing projectiles so it feels very very like reactive platforming it's like incredibly pure um the only other thing game which has the kind of platforming combo element to it is is what they do in some of like guacamole um i think it's quite similar except here i just much prefer the feel of the character like it has a bit more of like an organic kind of touch to it um it also knows that this is where the strength of the game lies like in the first game it doesn't really have boss fights it has like boss platforming sections where you escape from these dungeons as they sort of flood, so they're chase sequences, and you basically have to pull off this perfect chain of moves to get out. 
you will die tens of times. You'll probably swear at them and find them quite frustrating. Frustrating, but when you pull them off, it's just such a great feeling, and they look absolutely amazing. Like all these churning waters, kind of ripping stuff up. It's uh, I I can't understate what a good-looking game this is. And then in you know in the sequel, they bring in a lot more combat. It has everything the first one has. It has a lot more combat. I would say the second one, while like prettier and like denser and probably smarter in terms of its move list. I think it's less of a Metroidvania. I think it draws more from Zelda in that it has these like big dungeons and the game is built around you tackling four dungeons in an order of your choice. And that uh, it kind of introduces some of the problems I had with Link Between Worlds, where if you've got four things you can do in any order, it's quite hard to escalate those things. Also, in each one, you know, each dungeon you get a new power, but it doesn't know which powers you're going to have. So each dungeon's only really built around the power it knows you're going to have. So some of the powers go a bit unloved, which, you know, if you've played Link Between Worlds, you'll know that that was the case there too. So they're reasonably evenly matched. I think for the purity of the Metroidvania, I prefer the original, but the the sequel is still absolutely, absolutely majestic. I think it's really the genre fit for me. Like, I feel like if you are into Metroid and uh, if you played Hollow Knight, maybe on Switch as well, you should give this a go. It's not very Hollow Knight. It's, it's less about combat, more about good platforming. Yeah, okay. I should definitely, yeah, because these are on Game Pass as well, right? So uh, Maybe that's the case against yeah. them, like that they're available in even prettier, better versions elsewhere. But everything that's good about it is in the Switch version. And playing it on a handheld and like chipping away at that world. Mm. I mean, I, I would say Nintendo fans owe it to themselves to play these games. Yeah, okay. Good, uh, good, a good wreck. Um, that's the that's that's the case for it. Probably the weakest of the five <laughs> for the Hall of Fame. I, I hope know. I haven't already uh, destabilized the foundations of the Hall <laughs> of Fame in this in its inaugural uh, opening day. <laughs> no, it's all good. I think that like um, I think it's good to give people that wider picture, but it doesn't take away from the fact that probably loads of people played this on Switch as well. Like. Um, uh, yeah. And yeah, you know, it's it's on a handheld versus your TV. Yeah, Metroidvania is just particularly perfect for it. Um, yeah, gorgeous looking games. Yeah, I should really play these properly at some point. I just got so frustrated by that first Ori game when I put when I gave it a little <laughs> go. But like, um, it was just because the character was so small and the platforming was just so demanding in terms of um, uh, sort of how it plays. But you, there was a high level of precision to it, which I do like. I do like with a, a sort of yeah. game. So uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just, I just think like if you, if you're into platforming and it's like a genre you're super into, it, I know that you get like the ultra difficult super meat boy torture approach where you just die a hundred times. And I, I don't think Ori's ever is quite as difficult as some of that. I and mean, it's getting there in places. It, it's nice to have a game in a genre you love, which does escalate things and is more challenging than others. You know, it's nice to have a range of experiences. You've got like your gateway drugs of like your new super. Mario Brothers up to things which were a bit like a bit more tense like this I think I think that's quite important yeah for sure okay great well there we go Matthew we have um, laid out our first five slash six uh, games for the uh, <laughs> the uh, Nintendo Switch Games Hall of Fame so I think those are, are solid foundations I think they're like there's actually a good template there for like how we keep doing this as well in terms of like maybe two to three Nintendo things then two to three big indies like uh or Ooh. indies we think are important that feels like the way to go doesn't it so uh yeah nice um so yes as kind of like stated there will definitely be more of these episodes um so there are some big obvious ones that will come up in the future we just don't want to do all the obvious ones at once so uh 
Yes. Um, I think it, we could probably factor a guest into it at some point as well. Yeah, I think so. I'm sure get we'll a big, have... Get a big switch head in to like help us pick the next five or something. Any excuse to get Joe back on is, uh, is uh, <laughs> good by me. Um, so, uh, yep, yeah, that sounds My good. My favourite stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, he, he pretends he's joking, but uh, he's not really. Um, <laughs> I am joking. I'm not joking. He's one of the best three. <laughs> Okay, good. On that note then, Matthew, um, we uh, come to the end of another Backpage Pod. So, if you'd like to follow the podcast on Twitter, Backpage Pod, um, you'll find us on there. We'll tweet about new episodes and um, some of the uh, strange nonsense that our Discord users make. Um, that is also where you'll find the link to the Discord if you'd like to join our community, um, where you can submit game squad entries, questions to the podcast, um, or just join in with the chatter. It's uh, very wholesome um, most most of the time. It's, uh, it's pretty it's <laughs> yeah. good. Good little community we've got there. Um, closing in on 500 people there now, Matthew. It's uh, wow. very intense. Um, we have mentioned it before, but patreon.com slash backpagepod if you'd like to financially support the podcast. Um, we are getting closer to our stretch goal. We've got quite a way to go, but we have each month been incrementally increasing. So thank you so much for the support. We really appreciate it. Backing us on there unlocks two additional podcasts a month including the metal gear one we mentioned earlier and another episode about tv shows this month um oh there's lots of stuff lots of stuff here backpage games at gmail.com if you'd like to send us a longer question and you can't be bothered to go on discord that's fine um well can i can i add a quick shout out for something yeah go ahead uh i i appeared on a podcast called in the deep end uh where i talked about ace attorney uh with two very nice chaps uh i will uh put it in a tweet or something you should check that out if you enjoyed our old ace attorney episodes that was that was quite fun chatting to them yeah for sure so uh yeah if uh, you don't you, you you can't get enough of matthew talking about uh, ace attorney and shooter kimi on this podcast he's done it elsewhere which is uh is good i uh <laughs> that's cool and um, by all means check that out um there was one more thing i wanted to plug what was it oh yeah that was it i was just to say that if you um if you use like spotify or any of those um platforms have like a rating system just dropping us a review on any of those uh itunes or whatever always appreciated oh that's everything matthew where can people find you on on twitter mr basil underscore pesto i'm samuel w roberts and i believe next week is the best games of 2013 so um oh yeah it's uh, another monster Exciting. matthew we're both gonna be very tired at the end of that especially if it's gonna be fucking 27 degrees when we're recording it again um, <laughs> <laughs> um but thank you very much for listening i'll be back next week goodbye goodbye